This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. nickels and dimes when you take a look at what the uh, U.S. budget deficit is moving to. In fact, the Congressional Budget Office just out saying that the U.S. budget deficit will surpass $1 trillion by 2020, uh, as we talked about earlier. No surprise, but it is. This is what's surprising. It's happening two years sooner than previously estimated. Let's get into this um, with our roundtable here. Our Brian Chapata is U.S. Treasury's reporter at Bloomberg News. In our Bloomberg 11.30 studio, he's got a really interesting story out about the impact uh, on the Treasury market. Market as a result of this. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, along with Stan Collender, who is executive vice president at Corvus MSL Group, known as the Budget Guy, at the Budget Guy on Twitter. And he joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Um, Brian, let me start with you. Uh, it just crossed. Um, again, we anticipated and expected it to surpass a trillion dollars, but this is all happening a lot sooner. Thank you. Tax cuts? Right. Uh, and even just this year's deficit is going to be a lot bigger than projected uh, back in June. So uh, the market was largely expecting this. Wall Street sort of had a consensus, $800 billion or so uh, for this year, and it came out to be $804 billion as the deficit for the current fiscal year, which ends September 30th. So we're seeing a muted reaction in markets right now. I think the biggest question going forward uh, on that front is, how does the U.S. finance this? Does it issue more long-term debt and try to lock in Still relatively low interest rates, uh, or does it just do now, it, right? Do it, or do yeah, or do what it, ha- what it has been doing and essentially issue short-term bills and just roll them over again and again and again. Is there enough demand for all of that? That's going to be the big question. Where is it going to come from? Uh, whether it's foreign buyers like China and Japan or uh, mutual funds here, uh, someone's going to have to pick it up. <laughs> Stan Collender, come on in on this conversation. You've seen many cycles in Washington, and it used to be Republicans and many others did not like growing uh, budget deficits for the United States government. And yet, as we had an earlier conversation to kick off our broadcast, markets are like, yeah, whatever. As Brian just suggested, they've been anticipating this. There have been a variety of private sector forecasts for months that uh, the deficit was going to hit these levels and stay there. This is, however, the first official number uh, coming from the Congress's official budget scorekeeper. And if anything, these numbers are probably understated. Don't forget, CBO assumes that what's already in the law stays in the law. So as unlikely as it is that these tax cuts will be allowed to phase out when they're supposed to phase out, uh, CBO just assumes that's the case. I'm willing to bet, and Brian, see if you agree, that the deficits will be two to $300 billion higher by 2025, 26, 27 than the CBO is currently projecting. Brian, you agree? Well, certainly, uh, yeah, Morgan Stanley had $850 billion, and that was sort of cons- uh, considered consensus uh, for this fiscal year. So 804 actually came in somewhat low. Uh, it'll be interesting to see also... It is, uh, as we were sort of talking about, an unusual situation where you know this fiscal boost is coming sort of at the end of an economic cycle. So the question is going to be also, does the Fed lean into this and say this is not how it's supposed to work? We need to tighten up, uh, you know, tighten conditions faster now. Stan, as well, I don't said, you, yeah, go ahead. Stan. I'm sorry. No, I don't, Brian. Don't you think that the Fed has already or is already kind of telegraphed that that's exactly what they're going to do, which is that 
you know, with, with the additional fiscal stimulus, both the tax cut and the spending bill, that interest rates are going to – that they will feel required to raise interest rates faster than they had assumed just even a year ago? No, I do think that's a, that's a good point. I think one of the other outstanding questions, though, is you know there are still a lot of vacancies to be filled. Uh, you know who's exactly going to come in there? Certainly, Jay Powell has indicated you know all things are on course. You know we're going to raise three times, open the door for four. So, uh, but it'll be interesting because obviously all of this comes as you know we have to issue more debt, and you know we've already seen the price being paid on auctions of two-year notes, three-year notes, five-year notes because those are increasing two billion dollars in size. Uh, you know every month it seems like so so we're so we're going to rely on the chinese perhaps to buy some debt at the same time that we're we're, we're saber rattling over trade with them i think that's a good strategy don't you think it's called the art of the deal Stan. oh is that what it is okay <laughs> <laughs> just having some fun well, no but yeah. no but let's be serious i mean you're right right we talk about the chinese right the biggest buyer of u.s debt <laughs> what are the potential implications if this continues to play out and the trajectory uh for the u.s uh deficit and debt continues to go up well i mean the, the most logical thing to me and it, it, it's it's out there for everyone to see if you just open your eyes is that the real retaliation for tariffs may not be additional tariffs or retaliatory tariffs. It'll be not buying debt to the same level that they did before and therefore raising interest rates in the United States, slowing the economy and hurting a lot of people and making politicians you know, grimace. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that that's got to be one of the things the Chinese are considering. So, okay. So, Brian, talk to me, though, about... This kind of treasuries deluge, though, that we are anticipating on the market, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Correct? Right. That's going to be, I think, the the big question because you have the TBAC, the Borrowing Advisory Committee, all these influential investors that advise the Treasury about what they should do, and they're trying to say keep the average maturity of your uh, debt stable. You know, try to finance it in a variety of ways. But so far, we've really only seen, like I was saying earlier, just this this bill issue. And so it's been really short term. Money market funds have largely, you know, borne the brunt of this. Um, but I think the market's really going to look for next exactly how this is going to be financed. Thirty-year bonds. If you know the Treasury decides we're going to issue a billion more thirty-year bonds at every auction consecutively to finance this, that's going to have a real impact on long-term rates um, because there is just not that much of long debt outstanding, and that's going to be really test the appetite of insurers, pension funds, uh, investors like that. Stan, you're very familiar with how it works up on, on the Hill. Where are lawmakers on, on, on all of this? Do they care? Well, they may care, but they're not going to do anything about it. In fact, in one of the great ironies and the great hypocritical uh, legislative procedures of all time, on Thursday, the House is going to take up a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution that's being demanded by the same people who just voted to raise the debt, raise the deficit with the tax cut and the spending increase. Uh, no, it's, it, it may pass the House. It's not going to pass the Senate. But it, it's 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 the ultimate uh, diversion. Yeah. That is, you know, we're fiscally responsible, but don't watch what we do. Kind of sad at this point in our nation's history. Stan Collender, thank you so much. Executive Vice President, Corvus MSL Group, on the phone from Washington, at The Budget Guy on Twitter, and Brian Chapata, our U.S. Treasuries reporter here at Bloomberg News, at B. Chapata on Twitter. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio.
Yep, and increasingly going to the bank means going to the cloud. So if you want to take a look at a company like Encino, they are, in fact, a cloud banking service built on the Salesforce platform. Let's talk about the business, what's going on. Pierre Noday is chief executive officer at Encino. They are based in Wilmington, North Carolina, but he is in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Monday. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tell me, it's we've been be. talking in the break. Tell me what you guys are doing. You know, um, we saw an opening in digital collaboration for banks about six years ago, and we realized that banks have done a great job on automating the transactional interfaces. And if I'd say to you, mobile banking, you're thinking transfer money, can I view, you know, can I pay a bill, can I see my balances, etc. But we've never changed the way you interact with your bank. If I say you have to go to the bank, you still think I'm going to a branch, how do I apply for a new account, apply for a loan, etc. And that level of digital collaboration and creating this ecosystem to make it easy, convenient, and really bring it up to the standards of what Amazon, Uber has taught us. And, mm -hmm. and people use Facebook all the time, so they understand the collaboration part of it. And they sit there wondering, why can't I do this with my bank? And so we started by automating the, the commercial loan origination part of the bank. And we've taken that down to small business now. And we're into the retail side, which is deposits and retail loans as well. So everything. Everything when in it comes end. to loan. And, and what we strive to do is provide the bank the opportunity to make strategic decisions around do I have branches? Do I do everything digital? And I can co-mingle the two. So, Pierre, you're saying, and so who are the banks that you're dealing with? Well, we've got just sort of 200 banks now. We started in the community bank space to really get the software to work well. Mm -hmm. And then in 2014, December, we signed SunTrust and Bank of the West. So then we moved up into the bigger banks. Today, we've got 11 of the top 30 banks in the U.S. We've got in Europe signed one of the largest banks in the world for 56 countries. Um, we're Who moving is? to South Africa. At this time, I cannot announce it, unfortunately, but it's, it's large brand names that realize that this whole digital collaboration platform is where the world is going and they have to catch up. So how do you determine if somebody's applying for a loan um, and you're dealing with a bunch of different banks, how do you decide where that loan goes? Is it the best offer wins? So remember, we're not actually a lender. We are actually on the side of the banks. Right, right. Which is but different than the Ondex and the lending clubs of the world. Okay, so I sell my software to the bank. Then I help them with their cultural transformation, change management, as well as putting the platform in place. So you provide their platform. Exactly. And, and then they manage and use it themselves because in the end it comes mm -hmm. down to their credit policies, their processes, and their cultural and their people. But we guide them there. And here's the real magic. It's actually the agility of the platform once you're up and running. People are used to platforms being very stale and archaic, and you can't change it. Once it's in, you have to live with that system for seven to ten years. On our platform, you actually can go in and tweak those processes and your policies on a daily basis until you fine-tune it. So think of manufacturing, how you can actually change the processes to up quality all the time. Right. And you measure two things. You measure velocity and you measure quality. And if I can drive more velocity with the same amount of investment, I make more money. Right, right. It literally is that model that we're following. Well, I would hope that you could upgrade the models pretty carefully, considering we kind of, you know, you think about the technology in cars, the technology in phones, right? It's, it's, it's a rapidly moving world. Think of Tesla. They give you a software update right. every month, every six months. So we actually upgrade our banks every month, and then every six months for a large feature upgrade. I'm glad you're here with us, because I think it's, a t it's an interesting week here where we've got 
Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg going before Congress, and he's going to be answering a lot of questions about access to data uh, and user information. And I think we are living in this world where there's so much information accessible. The last thing I want is people knowing my financial information. Yes. So how do you secure it? What, what aspect is that of that platform that you are sharing or that banks are, are getting from you? Yes, so that is a, a very good question because we absolutely take privacy and security as a top, top-notch priority. We actually developed the whole system on Salesforce.com's platform, Force.com, and they've got a long history, the first, actually the innovator of the cloud, so to speak. Um, so they have a long history and reputation of trust and the ability to keep data mat uh, mature as well as secure. And therefore, when a bank runs on that platform, they can actually only access their own data. And we make sure there's a separation of duties, there's a separation of data, uh, and it's totally secure for your bank and your customer. Do you feel like, though, we have yet to see the cloud tested? Uh, you know, I think the cloud's getting tested every day. If you, if you track the security breaches and what's happening out there, it is top of mind for all of us every day in that business. And we do understand. However, if you look collectively at the company like Salesforce, they can spend so much more on security and firewalls, et cetera, and encryption than a single bank can. Right. So actually that dwarfs the amount of investment you can expect from the industry players individually, while this is a collective of players. Pierre, just got about 20 seconds here. What about something like blockchain? Will that have some kind of role going forward? Oh, absolutely. I believe, uh, personally, I believe blockchain is going to have a big uh, role inside banking between the contractive individuals and institutions. Uh, I'm not always sure about cryptocurrencies. It's a totally different thing. Right. People confuse it. But I do they think do. blockchain has a future, yes. Fascinating. Well, let us know how things are going. Uh, look forward to talking to you. Well, thank future. you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Pierre Naudet, he is Chief Executive Officer at Encino. They are based in Wilmington, North Carolina. He is in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City on this Monday. So come on and let the good time roll. We Yes, active versus passive investing. Our next guest says it's a good year for stock pickers. In fact, the aerial-focused fund beating just about all of its peers this year. Back with us is Charlie Bobrinskoy, vice chairman and head of investment group at Aerial Investments, over $13 billion in assets under management. Charlie joining us uh, on the phone from Chicago. Happy Monday. Hi, Carol. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, hi, you guys are having a good year in this environment. Um, finally, active managers, it's going to make a difference with all this volatility? Yeah, it's, it's uh, finally uh, <laughs> been a little easier to beat the S&P. As you know, the S&P has been driven higher with FANG stocks and technology stocks, uh, which are a big part of those indexes, all moving uh higher and getting very expensive, and we're finally getting into a market in which people seem to be paying some attention to valuation, and so the S&P is a little softer, the FANG stocks are a little softer, and it's getting easier to beat them. All right, so tell me about the volatility, Charlie. What has it meant for you guys? Have you been selling? Have you been adding to positions? How active and how much movement have you guys been doing this year? Yeah, so we, we try to uh, have volatility be our friends. We're stock pickers, and right. so when stocks go up and down, we try to buy them when they go down and sell them when they go up. And it's very hard to do that if they just go up in a straight line. And with some exceptions, that's been what's happened for the last five years or so until about January. So it was very hard to be a stock picker when stocks just go up in a straight line. And now we're certainly seeing opportunities. We've got some names that are down big on small bad news, and that gives us a chance to outperform. All right. So can you, how specific can you be? 
Uh, names we like? Well, um, there are a couple of, of very high-quality companies that have short-term problems. I'm going to give you a very controversial name that, that we have added to, and that is Mattel. Ah. Mattel, hmm. Mattel uh, has had well-publicized short-term problems. Toys R Us went bankrupt. That was their biggest customer. It totally messed up their Christmas last year. And, frankly, they're not going to be easily replacing those sales in the short term. But in the long term, people are going to still want to buy Barbie and Hot Wheels and uh, and American Girl. And uh, Mattel still has wonderful, wonderful brands. And, frankly, we think that a merger with Hasbro makes a lot of sense. So. And to be fair, so stock's a big opportunity here. Yeah, and to be fair, you guys have a pretty big position. You know, before adding to it, if I'm correct, uh, is it about 9.2 million shares? Yeah, that sounds about right. We, we, in fairness, we uh, we were early on this. We bought it at higher prices, but we think at these current levels, there's a real opportunity relative to the intrinsic value of the company. I mean, is it? I mean, Charlie, when you look at it and, and kind of the way toys are sold, right? Amazon just kind of kicking everybody's butts here, but I mean. Ultimately, you still see, I mean, these are the guys that are making a lot of toys that still people, kids want at this point, but it just needs some consolidation in a way to really kind of leverage, uh, certainly leverage themselves against Amazon and others. That's right. I mean, the the value of these names um, really hasn't gone down much. It's a myth that nobody is playing with dolls anymore. It's a myth that people aren't playing with Hot Wheels or Fisher-Price. Uh, and when you're buying a toy for your daughter or your baby, you want a brand that you recognize. And Mattel still has many of the best recognized brands around the world, whether they're bought on Amazon or at Toys R Us. All right. Interesting. Any other names that you've been adding to? We love KKR. I've talked to you about this yeah. before. But KKR can't be owned by the indexes because it's a partnership. It's just a spectacular business. It, they earn 2 and 20 fees in a growing industry. And yet the stock is trading at less than 10 times earnings. And we think that's an opportunity to take advantage of this move of money towards the index funds. KKR gets left behind. We get a chance to buy a great company at a great price. And you're happy about, because all of we've been seeing, Charlie, this trend among the big banks, as well as a lot of the big private equity guys, they're setting their kind of succession plans in place. And so you're happy with kind of the planning that's going on at KKR. Yeah, they did a, a nice job last year of naming the next uh, layer of management, the people that are going to be running the company going forward. They and Blackstone, in our opinion, are the best uh, position longer term. If you call big investors like CalPERS, they're cutting back on the number of people in private equity that they deal with, and people like KKR and Blackstone are taking share. Um, Johnson & Johnson is among your top ten holdings. Have you guys been adding to that one? I happen to like it. Usually mm. we don't do this, but they have a wonderful pipeline of new drugs um, that are going to be coming out over the next couple of years. There's obviously a lot of pressure on healthcare costs. And frankly, the right pharmaceuticals can be very cost efficient in the right spaces. And J&J has a great pipeline of new products. They're also big in orthopedics. Uh, people are getting older and people need more hips and knees. And Johnson Johnson is a big player there. So they have a lot of wins at their back long term. I'm not getting older. I'm just telling you that. I'm not <laughs> fighting it all the way. Um, you know what's interesting, too, though? I wonder, Charlie, as you guys are, are adding to some of your positions, do you anticipate that you'll even have more opportunities later this year, that this volatility is just going to continue? It's kind of more normal in terms of a marketplace? 
Yeah, the the last five years of a straight line up is just not normal, and there's going to be bumps along the way. And, and the two big ones are what everybody says, which is trade wars and inflation. On days when you get signs that there's more inflation, people worry about higher interest rates and markets go down. On days when our president tweets about trade wars, the markets go down. And I don't see that either one of those issues going away, and so there's going to be more volatility. Long term, though, we think... Uh, there's going to be great earnings improvements as the benefits of lower tax rates come through and relatively strong world economy. So we're very bullish on earnings over the next 12 to 24 months. doesn't sound like you're at all worried about the big headline that we've been just talking about is uh, the budget deficit, the annual budget deficit, a trillion dollars or, or more, and getting there sooner than we expected. Those aren't the things that you care. You're just looking at the company fundamentals here. Right. And, and we would say that long-term, Federal deficits are a big problem five to ten years, but one thing we've learned over the last ten years is the size of the federal deficit doubled between 2009 and 2018, and the market tripled. (laughs) So in the short run, the market can absorb a trillion dollars of federally guaranteed debt. Long run, we got to figure out some of these entitlement spending issues, but it's not going to derail, in our opinion, the markets over the next 12 months. All right. Always fun to have you on and talk names in particular. Charlie, thank you so much. Charlie Bobrinskoy, he's vice chairman, head of investment group over at Aerial Investments, over $13 billion in assets under management. And Charlie joining us on the phone from Chicago. Well, the CEO of Facebook going to Washington, my mistake, apologies, not doing enough and responsibility. Those are among the things Mark Zuckerberg is expected to say as he gets ready for congressional hearings tomorrow and Wednesday. Let's get into this with Brad Stone, senior executive editor of global technology at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Also with us, Steve Dennis, he's Senate reporter at Bloomberg News up on Capitol Hill in Washington. Brad, let me kick off with you. Already we know this is serious. Mark Zuckerberg in a suit today up on the Hill meeting with lawmakers. <laughs> Makers ahead of all that testimony. I kid, I kid, but these are serious times for Facebook and its CEO, and that kind of says something about what he was wearing today. Yeah, absolutely. You know he's not comfortable in that environment, and I think that's one reason why this is set to be a pretty combustible two days of testimony. You know, he doesn't enjoy this kind of environment, and he's actually not very good at it. And he's going to be confronted with some questions that he probably doesn't have very good answers to, such as what happened to the personal information of 87 million Facebook users obtained by Cambridge Analytica. And did Facebook play a role, even a decisive role, in the 2016 presidential election? So the apology tour continues. It's in its third week now. But I think, you know, he, he's going to come under some pretty intense fire tomorrow. All right. Maya culpa, big time. Hey, Steve, Dennis, come on in on this. Talk to us about what will be the mood, the tone uh, among lawmakers and in their questioning of Mark Zuckerberg. How hostile might it be? Well, I think senators are going to be careful to praise uh, the CEO for uh, you know a huge accomplishment, a big business success, a big American success, but they're they're going to point out there are dark sides to this, and they are going to press them very hard, especially the Democrats on the Russia question. You're going to have Republicans pressing on the privacy question, and also on the question of fake news and whether the company will go too far in censoring news outlets, particularly conservative outlets. That's something that. Republicans are very concerned about. So, you know, he's going to get it from both sides. Uh, Senator Nelson, who just, you know, an hour or two ago met with 
uh, Zuckerberg for an hour is basically sold now on regulation at some point. He doesn't think that the Trump administration is too interested in regulation, but says, look, we need to protect privacy. And that's you can't just do that by trusting Facebook or some of Facebook's partners with privacy. He basically called out Facebook for basically trusting Cambridge Analytica and other companies to sort of do the right thing. And Zuckerberg told them, well, they lied to us. Hmm. And so Nelson sort of thinks that Facebook was naive. And so I think you could see a very interesting sort of dynamic with them calling out uh, Facebook as being too trusting right. and too willing to open things up. Now, both of you put out great stories today on Facebook and, and what's expected tomorrow, and you both kicked around some questions that Mark Zuckerberg might face. Let's let's do that. Brad, I mean, what's the number one or two questions that you would be asking Mark Zuckerberg? Well, I mean, I think we, we can all imagine the obvious ones around uh, the Cambridge Analytica intrusion. Where is the information now? What are they doing to stop uh, these kinds of things from happening again? And, you know, Zuck has some probably well-practiced uh, talking points on that. But, you know, the point of my newsletter this morning was that perhaps there is a more constructive line of questioning and that this is really a joint responsibility. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as, as Steve just said, Congress might be willing to act, but over the last two years, they haven't done much. I mean, there have been proposed, you know, proposed legislation like the Consumer Privacy Protection Act, the My Data Act, which have gone nowhere. And so, you know, looking at what the joint responsibility is and what, you know, what the role of the federal government is in, uh, you know, is, f- for example, giving people control over their own information online, um, you know, creating a, an antitrust, uh, perhaps, um, framework for these companies that keep getting bigger and more dominant and, and are really monopolies in their own ways. Um, you know, future threats, like how should we protect against the exploitation of software that can, you know, manipulate video or audio to make it seem like, uh, you know, politicians, for example, have said things that they have never said. And, I, you know, so, I, I mean, I, I don't think that those are the kinds of questions we'll hear. I think, you know, they're going to be pretty sharp. Um, yeah. and, and he's probably not going to have great answers to a lot of them. Steve, you know, regulating social media, not a priority until it is. Is that basically kind of what we're seeing now? Well, I mean, the politics of this is the Democrats think that, you know, the Russians abused uh, and used and abused Facebook, which had its guard down during 2016 and helped elect Donald Trump. And so the Republicans don't really love that storyline. They'd much rather have a sort of a forward-looking storyline saying, well, anybody could use these tools to, uh, you know, target propaganda in a very uh, sophisticated way to you test the propaganda on the particular person you're trying to do, trying to either persuade to vote or not vote. And that's a that's a very sticky issue. It's one that Facebook has, frankly, t- talked yeah. a lot about doing something, and, and it's going to be very hard for them to answer that. And then just the, the yeah. basic question, why should we trust you? Right. Dr. That's going to be, uh, no doubt about it, that's going to be a big one. Got to run, guys. Steve Dennis, Senate reporter at Bloomberg News. He'll be covering this. Uh, he's up on Capitol Hill in Washington. Brad Stone also will be following this very closely. Our senior executive editor of Global Tech at Bloomberg News from our 960 studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us.
is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, just about 10 minutes left to go in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Ryan Dietrich back with us, senior market strategist at LPL Financial, $615 billion in assets under management. And he says that after being up a record 15 consecutive months on a total return basis, well, some weakness for the S&P 500, perfectly normal. Ryan, back with us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. So explain that, Ryan. From a t- You're looking at this from a technical basis. So to get a little bit of a pause... Not surprising. That's right, Carol. You know, first off, glad to be back. But when you talk about what happened, you know, we just had nine consecutive quarters of growth for the S&P 500. We just had the longest streak ever without a 5% correction. And, you know, when you consider the fact that 15 months in a row of gains on a total return basis, an all-time record, hey, some volatility made perfect sense. And when you consider what just happened, yes, we had a 10% correction in nine days, obviously. A lot of scariness to it. We've had four 2% 2% drops previous 11 days. You have to go back to the summer of 2015, the last time we saw something like that. So in the end, what's it all mean? Well, S&P is still right at this nice upward-trending 200-day moving average, so it's been a volatile pullback. But in the confines of this bull market, we think it's probably going to be more of a buying opportunity as those underlying fundamentals are still really, really strong. So what does it mean, though, um, Ryan, that we continue to see the volatility, volatility that we've been seeing? It's just a little bit more of that? Or you're saying that volatility, but it starts to temper back a little bit, or taper back, excuse me, and that overall you're going to start to see stocks move higher? Yeah, well, it's really a combination of really all of those things. You consider last year only eight days moved 1% either up or down. And, you know, we've had practically that many in the last couple of weeks. But wait, wait, I mean, wait, wait, wait. Just... let's stop there because that's sure. right. And we've been kind of hammering this big time, but I think it's maybe smart for us to do that. You know, you look at the markets at a technical basis, uh, on a technical basis. You've looked at things over the years. Last year was the anomaly, correct? This year is a little bit more normal. That's exactly correct. You know, last year, when you look at just kind of the intraday volatility and the moves we had, you had to go back to the mid-90s, and you had to go back to the mid-60s. The last time we saw really periods like that, and actually early 50s also, what's really important and something we stressed our investors when at the time was years like that, you'd always, you're going to have more volatility next year. That's normal. But the big thing to remember is the mid-90s, we continued to have gains for, for several years. In the mid-60s, we continued to have gains. In the early 50s, when we had a 1952 was a year like last last year without a lot of volatility. Really strong gains. So you can have more volatility and the bull market very well can survive. And that's that's really a scenario we continue to think is exactly what we're going to see happen here with those earnings that we get into. Earnings are supposed to be up with almost nearly 20% in the upcoming quarter. Really strong uh, global earnings and uh, domestic earnings. And that's going to continue this bull market in our opinion. But I don't need to remind you that just before the housing meltdown, and I think just before the tech meltdown, people were pretty optimistic about earnings and other things things as well, and they came undone pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. No, you're exactly you're exactly correct, Carol. Now, when you talk about, you know, let's talk about the financial crisis, for instance. What happened then, you know, lots of different sectors and stocks were breaking down, financial specifically were breaking down. In the late 1990s, about the only thing going higher was technology. Various sectors are breaking down. We're simply not seeing that. We still think there's healthy rotation. Look what's happened since really all the trade wars have started, trade war talk has started. Small cap's been doing well. There's a lot of small cap, comp- small cap companies out there. In other words, overall market breadth is still really strong. 
strong in our opinion. And if you have that underlying strength, you can have the volatility we're talking about. But there's still not the big worries that we've seen over excesses that we've seen at previous peaks. There's still strong underpinning to the fundamentals and on the technicals in our view here. All right, Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks comments had a pretty cool uh, chart of the day earlier, um, Ryan, and he talked about shares of the biggest U.S. technology companies looking riskier than they have in years relative to smaller company stocks. And he talked about the CBOE NASDAQ 100 volatility index and how it's closed more than five points higher than a similar gauge tied to the Russell 2000 for a record eight consecutive uh, days. And uh, Michael Shaul over at Marketfield said heightened concerns about technology and U.S. trade disputes explain the reversal. So, you know, when you look at some of the different relationships between some of the different groups in the equity markets, you see more upside overall or you see a mixed bag or you see more downside. Sure. Well, the general theme is the overall upside is still in play. This is a you know overall cyclical bull, cyclical bull market. We still think that's the case. Now, you mentioned small caps, large caps. You know, coming into this year, small caps as a group, we expected to potentially outperform large caps. And historically speaking, when the economy is strong, when you have higher rates, small caps tends to do better. And small cap honestly lagged for a while. So we think it probably was time for small caps. And now, when you overlay the trade concerns, clearly small caps have done a lot better. It's the more domestic by nature. That's just one more positive for small caps. But it doesn't mean large caps you know, can't continue to do well. We still think there's a shot for double-digit returns overall equities this year. But small caps probably can do a little bit better, and that's kind of what we're seeing so far the last couple of months at least. I mean, and if I look at the S&P 500, most of the major industry groups among the 11 that make up the S&P, they're down this year. Consumer discretionary and infotech right now are up for the year. But, you know, financials, healthcare, industrials, uh, energy, materials, real estate, consumer staples, telecom, they're all down. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. And obviously, it comes on the heels of last year, where obviously the majority of them are up significantly. So really, it's kind of, do you think it's just a short-term blip catching its breath before the overall uptrend uptrend continues, or is this the end? Well, we think it's clearly the market catching its breath. And, you know, let's talk about earnings just for a second here. We went back to 1991, when the S&P 500 earnings are up more than 10% for the year, which this year they're expected to be mid-teens. There's a very good chance they could even be higher. The overall S&P 500 was higher for the year 12 out of 12 times. So should earnings come in mid even when the higher. Fed is even when the Fed is raising rates? Yeah, even in those years. I mean, there were some years factored in there. And, you know, you talk about Fed raising rates. I mean, you know, we've seen the numbers. We've run the numbers. Historically yeah. speaking, when the 10-year goes higher until it gets up around 4 4.5% or so, that's where you have that correlation stop. So higher rates normally okay. equal a higher stock market until you get too high on the rates. And we're not there yet. Ryan, good to check in with you. Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, $615 billion in assets under management on the phone from Charlotte. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 